Welcome to Naturistic, a biology podcast focused on ecology, evolution, plants and animals. I'm Nash Turley, a biologist. And for this special Halloween episode, Hamilton Boyce and I are talking about a video project we just completed. The spooky topic is zombie ants. Howdy-ho, Hamilton Boyce. What's up? How's it going? I hear you have been putting in some long hours on a project out yonder. Yes. So, man, what, two years ago or so, you came and visited me in the great state of Florida, and we uh, filmed a bunch of videos. And one, our our white whale for a long time has been this zombie ant video. Uh, yeah. So how's, how's that been going? It's been, uh, it's been a journey. I think I... Think I learned a lot. I, I grew as a person. Uh, I discovered, <laughs> uh, I discovered myself and others. Um, but, uh, it's been fun, definitely a lot more labor intensive than I originally anticipated. Um, I think I may have taken a, a year break somewhere in there as well. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, so I, all of our other naturistic videos have, I think maybe maxed out at five minutes or something. And it was always just me. We never really worked with anyone else. But in this project, we work with a, a bunch of other researchers to get interviews and stuff in the field. And it's a lot more complicated. So I imagine that is that <laughs> the main reason why it sort of was a, a bigger task? Yeah, totally. And just like a kind of just a bigger story. Um, yeah, more characters. Uh, you know, the subject of this one is two different species that interact with each other. Uh, just a lot more going on, more moving parts. And uh, I think we mentioned zombie ants. The The broad topic are these ants that get infected by a fungi. And we're going to listen to the audio of it in a bit, so you'll hear all the story. But there's a lab here um, at where I work at University of Central Florida where that's all they do. They study this interaction. And we were really excited to, you know, I think, had you heard of zombie ants before? I don't think I had. Yeah. Thinking thinking way back, um, I I had heard of various like takeover infections um, mm. and I had heard of the summit disease. I don't know. Maybe I had heard of zombie ants. I certainly did not know the vast majority of stuff that we learned from the yeah. lab. Yeah. The, the broader theme that exists in a lot of systems is parasite manipulation. So um, a cool example of that is this, there's um, a parasite that a lot of people get from cat feces that is in, gets in people's brains and research has discovered that that might actually really increase humans' risk-taking ability. So like if you have this parasite, you're like more likely to get in car crashes and things. Right. Um, which is pretty wild. Um, and that, that uh, parasite is really normally infecting rodents and the behavior, the way it infects rodents is that it's ultimately trying to get in a cat. So it's trying to have the rodent be more likely to get caught by a cat. So the rodents actually like the smell of cat urine and are, you know, out in the open, easy to catch. So it's, you know, many of these parasites are manipulating their host in a way that benefits their own reproduction. Right. So crazy. And what, and, Tons of people have it. Yeah, I I forget the number, but it's definitely quite common. The statistic that I used in the 
uh, in the video was one third, but that right. was my own kind of personal average of a few different statistics. Like one, right. I think one article said, uh, or paper it said could be as much as 50%. And another one I think said 30%. Um, yeah. But it, you know, estimates. So one third seems like a good middle ground yeah. there. And then, yeah, I mean, these types of manipulations exist, you know, especially in the arthropod world, there's just a whole bunch of them. There's, and there's fish that have manipulated behavior. And, and then the other thing is that insects are just there. It's a rough life for bugs out there because <laughs> there's tons of fungi that attack insects. Um, and I've ran across lots of various insects that are just like bursting with fungi. They're dead and they're just, you know, have these spores and things poking out from all over them. And that's pretty common, especially in more tropical areas. Yeah, totally. They're like at the scale of the insect too. It's like right. the fruiting body is the size of your entire head. Yeah, cool. And then, and then yeah, there are some other cool things that came up with this video. I know I was excited to uh, get to participate in some of the music. So I, I made, we actually, when we were making the, sort of in the process of putting the video together, I think I somewhat jokingly was like, all right, after this little introduction part, the Black Angel song Manipulation will come in. Yeah. <laughs> because it's, you know, it's a sort of spooky song and then it just has that, you know, hook of manipulation. Totally. It's perfect. It's it's heavy. It's dark. It's yeah. about manipulation. And then we just didn't really want to, you know, use other people's music um, because it's either you're, you should really have to license it or just steal it, neither of which we wanted to do. <laughs> so I I um, came up with another song that was definitely highly inspired by it, a similar vibe, um, and just recorded that in my apartment, which was pretty fun. Yeah, it turned out great. And then I forced you to let me re remix it. <laughs> oh no, I wanted you to. Oh cool. And then and then you made um, you made some music as well. What was your you know journey for that? Yeah, I did. I did kind of two passes of like scoring for it, and one was very like synthesizer based. I used a lot of like this uh, this '80s digital synthesizer um, for kind of these like almost these horror like horror movie kind of sounds. Um, this old '70s synthesizer for again more like kind of classic horror sounds, a lot of like tense tones and stuff like that. Um, yeah, and then I did another pass when I had the edit like pretty close. And it just needed some, some bits of like, there were just chunks of it that were silenced and it just needed some extra little layer. So I went in with my electric guitar and just did plugged in direct and just started doing these weird, like sort of delay loop reverb layers of like kind of oh. these swelled electric guitar things. Okay. Uh, I, I'm not sure that I even noticed that. I'll, yeah. I'll it's watch, pretty subtle. It's, again. it's not yeah. as like, th that stuff's not as well featured but it's kind of under some of the dialogue and you can kind of hear it like swelling in at some of the transitions and stuff yeah so all that together it was you know put together in a way that we think will work well just as an audio piece obviously to see get the full experience head to our youtube channel check that out um we're going to be uploading it on wednesday well it's uploaded already and we're premiering it wednesday at 10 a.m uh, Pacific right. 1 p.m. Eastern. So a live premiere. Any other introduction thoughts about the video? Um, well, we should maybe just introduce that it's uh, a bunch of the students and members of the researchers at the Charissa de Becker lab were generous enough to like take us out 
and yeah. show us everything and talk to us and explain how it's all working and stuff. Yeah, that was so fun. So it was, they're, they're a pretty new lab. And uh, so like the, all the students were kind of in the same cohort. They're like a really tight group, which is definitely not always the case among, you know, groups of grad students. So we all, all on one day, we all got together and went out to a, a nearby park and they all gave us their, their spiel of what it is they're working on. And it was really fun. Totally. See, and I've also never been part of a research group where they're all working on the same system, but then all still doing their own thing. So it was neat to see how like different parts are all, you know, specialized on all on one system, but different parts of it. Totally. And it works well for kind of a narrative too, because you can have each person explaining their own kind of specialty area that uh, sort of when you put it all together sort of tells the full story. Uh, cool. Yeah. Should we listen to it? Yeah, we'll uh, we'll play it in its entirety and then maybe we'll have some some thoughts afterwards. Nice. Here you go. <laughs> We have traveled to a subtropical forest in central Florida with a team of biologists. And today we are in pursuit of an unusual pairing of organisms that may as well come straight out of a sci-fi nightmare. A fungal parasite that infects a host and proceeds to manipulate its behavior before killing it and using its body as a platform for its own reproduction and spread. These unlucky infected individuals are commonly and eerily referred to as zombie ants. Here we go. You found one? Okay. It's a little high. Okay. Let's see if we can find one down lower. Oh yeah, here it is. There's two, there's three right here. All right, so we found one. My name's Ayn and I'm a PhD student in the Charissa de Becker lab where we study uh, a fungal parasite. And when I'm talking about a fungal parasite, you can imagine something a little bit almost like a bread mold or a mushroom, but infects another animal. And so in our case, our fungus uh, will get into ants. This behavior-changing manipulation is an impressive and diabolical evolutionary adaptation, which helps the fungus pass on its genetic material to future generations. Once infected, the fungus mysteriously takes control of an unfortunate ant's body and coerces it to climb up a nearby plant, where the fungus will then compel the ant to bite down on the stem, where it will be anchored for the remainder of its very short life. Most animals get infected by fungi, including humans, but we often associate a fungal infection with minor symptoms, like an itchy skin rash. In this case, however, the manifestation is much more extreme. As the infection progresses, the fungi send hyphae throughout the ant's entire body, including their muscles. Picture invasion of the body snatchers. the ant's body has effectively been snatched. At sort of the terminal phases of this sickness, they'll stumble their way up, uh, very uncoordinated, kind of 
you know, sick and almost drunk looking. The fungus just manipulates them to climb up vegetation to an elevated height. And that's when the fungus coerces the ant to bite down on the porous vegetation with its mandibles. And then from there, kills the ant and sprouts to the back of the ant's head. The infected ant, in its death grip, clutches with all its strength to elevated vegetation, becoming nothing more than a weaponized tool for spore dispersal. The fungus then grows a fruiting body, which bursts out of the back of the ant's head, extending outward, eventually launching out spores that rain down on the ants below, infecting more individuals. If we were at this stage where we have an ant that's uh, biting up on a plant mm -hmm. and the fungus has grown a stalk out of the back of its head and produces a, a fruiting body. From that fruiting body, it can release spores, which will go out and either land directly on an ant or on the ground, where they'll um, create a secondary spore that's kind of sticky and will hit an ant as it walks by. These ants, whether they're foraging or walking around on the forest floor, presumably, will come into contact with the um, fungal spores, and those will be attached to them uh, and eventually they will penetrate the uh, cuticle or the exoskeleton at the outer shell of the ant and that's where it will develop and grow internally um, and it will start the, the first process of the infection. This highly specialized adaptation maximizes the fungi's ability to infect new ant hosts and continue the spread of the fungus through future generations. Researchers believe this ant manipulation behavior evolved in Ophiocordyceps more than 48 million years ago. Even if these ants were never turned into fungus-induced zombies, they would still be a complex and compelling species. This is Campanotus floridanus, the Florida carpenter ant. What can you tell me about their colony? So these are social insects that live in a group. That's what fascinates me the most is the social organization. So these are monogynous colonies. That means they have one queen and rest all of them are female workers, right? Okay. And, but we also have different castes in social insects. Like in bees, we have a worker caste, which are the non-reproductive ants in the colony and mm -hmm. then the reproductive queen. And within the workers, we have now behavioral caste is the ones who are adults, which are outside are foragers, but the younger ones stay inside and work as nurses, tending the brood, tending to the queen, cleaning up the nest. But interestingly, in our system, we have another caste, which is the morphological caste. And these are the majors, which look bigger, huge heads, and they are the soldiers of the colony. And then you have the smaller ones, which are the miners, which does foraging and nursing. Okay, so you have these big colonies of a bunch of individual ants, but they're not the same. They have different casts um, that have different behaviors and different looks for different jobs, basically. That right? is it. Do they eat wood or they just nest they, in wood? So, unlike what the name suggests, they do not eat wood. They just nest inside the wood. They will usually chew out the wood and then deposit it outside the nest. Eat they hang wood. around wood, they don't eat it. They do not. I mean, I guess that's like a carpenter. A carpenter doesn't eat wood. Exactly. <laughs> that's a good they point. just work with it. <laughs> to study the zombie ant interaction in detail, it's very helpful for the researchers to have access to the carpenter ant colonies in the lab. Can you tell us quickly how it is that you're able to keep the ants in the lab so you can study them? 
Yeah, so once we dig these ants out from the field, we bring them back in. The researchers collect a queen and worker ants from the field and bring them into a temperature-controlled environment that mimics the structure of a rotting log with small connecting tunnels throughout. And are these ones that will just live there um, for a short while until they die, or are you able to have a colony that uh, persists? So to have a colony that persists, we have to have the queen. So we have a few colonies in the lab which have the queen, and she would lay egg every day, and the workers would take care of it, and the colony should be fine for like even two, three years. To study the fungal ant manipulation, researchers have developed techniques to harvest and maintain the fungus in a laboratory setting. Yeah, so first we go out into the field and we like to collect a sample of an infected ant. So ideally what From the infected ant, they extract living fungus cells and place them into a media where they can flourish. So these are all the blastospores, or we call them baby fungus. And from here we can use it later on to inject the ants with. Maintaining both ant and fungus populations in a controlled environment and with reliable methods for inducing the fungal infection in ants, the researchers are now allowed vast opportunities for detailed studies, experimentation, and discovery. The last thing we learned about was infecting these ants in the lab. Can you tell us about um, what it is you're studying once you have these infected ants? Right, so after infection, we can finally uh, test the behavior within a controlled lab environment. Um, so my project, I would like to uh, test the ants within a maze. Um, in this study, the researcher puts both infected and healthy ants into a 3D printed maze and observes how they differ in their navigation to the food at the end. The goal is to quantify what specific changes to the ants' behavior are taking place. Other studies in the lab, using genetics, aim to discover the mechanisms that allow the fungi to control the ants' behavior. While there's still so much to learn about Ophiocordyceps and how they make this complex takeover happen, they're not the only organisms to influence their host's behavior. It's much more common than you might think. And it doesn't just occur with ants. For example, experts believe that roughly one-third of the entire human population is currently infected with a brain parasite capable of altering its host's behavior. That host could be you. Even changes in our microbiome are believed to impact human behavior. Parasites selfishly influencing animal behavior are widespread and often very specialized. So Ian, are there other fungi that manipulate the behavior of their hosts? Yeah, so there's a number of different fungal parasites out there that can affect uh, various insects like beetles or flies or caterpillars. Um, but the one that we work on, uh, Ophiocordyceps, largely specializes on ants. And our local species, Ophiocordyceps campanodi floridani, um, is presumed to be specific to the Florida uh, carpenter ant. So is the type of manipulation we see in the Florida carpenter ant what you see in other systems? Um, so there are some variations, but also some common themes. And one of the things that you see in different insects with different fungi is something we call a summit disease, where the infected individual will be uh, manipulated to go to the top of a plant in an exposed area and die there. Didn't you tell us one about the, earlier that like burrows into the ground and oh, so actually that's, that's a, a totally different. No, that is a summit disease because it's low in the ground and then at death it comes up shallow in the ground. So the caterpillar like naturally burrows okay. and it burrows deep. But before, if it has the infection before it dies, it comes up within the first few centimeters of the soil oh, and okay. dies there. So then the 
the stalk that grows out can actually protrude out of the ground. Okay, so it still is climbing up, but it's, it's doing it underground. Exactly. Very cool. Yeah. A behavior controlling hostile body takeover from a parasitic fungi might feel more like the product of an eccentric horror story than a backyard commonplace, but evolution can follow unexpected routes. And these living nightmares are out there among us, and they're not uncommon, mostly unnoticed, and still scarcely understood. So we've been out all day learning about uh, zombie ants and these carpenter ants. Are these something that we can find around here all the time? In fact, we do. This is, I believe, one of the most common backyard ants you can find. If there's a piece of log that's being left behind in your backyard for like a few months, chances are you will find carpenter ants out there. We are in a parking lot today, and this is one of my favorite spots on campus. Because there's a nest that has a uh, that nests right inside the floor of the parking garage and it just is amazing how they can actually find small spots where they can nest in. So I'm curious, uh, do we know if in these types of uh, habitats we see the infections and the zombie ant behavior happening? I do not know. It's, it's amazing how little we know about the system. Even though we study it in labs, we really don't know much about the natural history. Thanks for joining us today through the terrifying world of zombie ants. Special thanks to Charissa DeBecker and the DeBecker Lab for taking us out into the field and into their lab to show us the research they're working on and their process. We'll see you next time. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that spooky experience. You have chills down your spine. <laughs> chills down your exoskeleton. <laughs> yeah. So we, we had a, a, a number of things that came up during the making of that that didn't make it to the video. There were other facts or things we learned from the researchers or other stuff that just didn't fit in. Yeah, you could easily make a, a feature film about right. about all the offshoots and the specifics and the wormholes yeah. and stuff. Rabbit holes. Wormhole. Eh, they're both holes <laughs> filled with animals. Yeah, and worm is a more apt animal <laughs> for this. So one of the things that I thought was really uh, pretty wild was that for a long time, I think a lot of this fungal manipulation research pretty much assumed that the the fungi was getting in the brains of the animals and mm. that was really what was causing the behavioral change. Right. But the new research is kind of showing it's not really so much going on in the brain, but more that the fungi are spreading throughout the body in manipulating the hormones and the muscles directly. Yeah, so wild. And because originally we were using terms like mind control and stuff yeah. like, you know, taking over their brains and stuff. And we had to like back out of that because it's like, well, might not actually be much brain involved. It might be yeah, just more direct, direct takeover, which is kind of even more insane. Yeah. And they, they found that just by like looking at where they see the fungal genes in the body, they basically like extract DNA from parts of the body and look at where it is. And it's just like not much in the brain. And one of the muscles that they've been able to study really directly in the ants are the jaw muscles. 
Um, because I think it mentions in the video that the, the ants clamp down and then like hang on after they die. Yeah. The death so it's like, grip. So if, if they're dead, how do they, how do they do that? <laughs> and, um, so the fungi actually get into the jaw muscles and like, you know, they, they have big effects on those muscles that cause them to clamp down when they die. Did you did you watch um, Invasion of the Body Snatchers yet? <laughs> I did not. Oh man, you gotta watch it. <laughs> so good. When did that come out? Um, th- well, the the first one is from the fifties, fifty six, I think, and then the the second one, which I think it's probably more well known, um, is from the seventies. I think it's seventy eight or nine with Donald Sutherland. And it's got like stuff that goes into their bodies and takes them over. Yeah, it's more of like they kind of become it's like a full takeover um where Mm -hmm. they sort of like go into the bodies i mean it looks like this it looks like fungi it looks like hyphae that are going into their bodies and stuff but then they sort of like come become the individual from the inside out so it's a you know it's not exactly the same it's not a documentary but it's uh, (laughs) a very similar sort of functional yeah whatever i imagine that because people have written stories like that it's like somewhere in our brains we have some fear of internal takeover and then the fact that those things actually exist is one reason why they really catch people's attention perhaps totally yeah i mean it's a story that's meant to scare people yeah and it's a thing that actually happens in real in real life one of the patterns that we got to see in the field uh, that we didn't really get to talk about in the video was that there's these regions out in the, you know, in the forest called, that they call graveyards. Um, and that basically there's, there'll just be like one bush or one tree or one area where there's tons of these ants that have, that are parasitized and have these, you know, fruiting bodies poking out the back of their heads. Whereas you'll walk all over the place and you won't see many, but trying to understand why it is that in these one areas, there's just a whole bunch of them. Yeah, totally. And graveyard is just such a good term because it's like so creepy and there's all these yeah. dead individuals and it's got a very Halloween-like experience to it. Yeah. And I guess the scene where we first see them, that was a, that was a graveyard site basically, because we were able to find a bunch of them. And that was one of their field sites where they were studying that. And yeah. one of, basically, they're kind of doing some pretty, you know, standard ecology stuff where they're just measuring environmental variables in areas where there are graveyards and not graveyards to see if, you know, is it light? Is it temperature? Things like that. And last I heard, they, they hadn't really figured that out. They, they suspect it may have a, a temperature thing because other parasitizing fungi seem to be influenced a lot by temperature okay but um so far they still haven't really figured that out yeah and i remember um we ended up sarah linehan was telling us about those and we ended up not being able to kind of fit it in mostly because i think we didn't really know exactly what the the story flow was going to be at the time that we were filming it yeah. Um, so we didn't really like introduce it in a very good way, but, um, she was talking about like just even having, trying to figure out like what classifies a graveyard, like yeah. how many are there, or is it like, are there sort of, is it a spectrum or is it like, this is a graveyard and there's tons of them and there's, and then there's other places where there's barely any or none or whatever. Yeah. And you know, a lot of those types of things, um, you really need to measure it a bunch before you can really see if, 
this kind of observed pattern is a real thing? Like, is there commonly a place where there's more than a hundred of them or is, um, I think it's, it's kind of easy to see patterns in the field and think they're this phenomena, but you can't really know that until you take a bunch of measurements on it. Right. Get the facts. Yeah. And, and later in the, in the video, we, we sort of like hint at looking at some of the mechanisms, like getting at the genetics or the genes. And we talked to Ian quite a bit about that, which was another thing that we didn't really, you know, get to include. It gets kind of complicated pretty quick. And then Trissa told us, what was it that Trissa told us about some of the, the genes? Yeah, well, she said that, she told you that uh, right before the death of the ants um, who are infected, up to 50% of the transcripts from the tissues can be mm. fungus. Right. Which I was trying to interpret that because it seemed like a cool fact. I was trying to interpret that in a way that I could explain it in the video, but I couldn't quite put it into a simple sentence. <laughs> and yeah. maybe you can do I was like, is half of the actual physical, like, is half of half of the body is made up of the fungus or it's like the the dna or the rna or whatever that's i don't know maybe you can explain it better yeah so basically one of the the central dogma of biology is that you have dna and the dna gets read and turned into rna which is like temporary copies and then that rna is translated into proteins which is just the stuff that your body makes to do everything. Right. So DNA to RNA to protein. So the DNA is fixed in your body. It just is what it is. It's in the nucleus of your cell um, and different cells. Um, but one of the main reasons why multicellular organisms aren't uh, have all these different tissues and cells is because the different cells do different things, even though they all have the same DNA. Right. And they do that by through lots of magic trans by um, having different um, parts of the DNA getting transcribed into RNA and then that RNA getting transcribed into protein. So the cells in your mouth have different genes being transcribed than the cells in your feet. And that's what makes them different. That's what makes them different types of cells. Right. Otherwise it, you'd just be blob from head to toe. Well, it would be blob yeah. to blob. <laughs> right. And yeah, I mean, simple multicellular organisms don't have differentiated cells. And that's, you know, one of the big things that makes, you know, differentiated, you know, animals, basically <laughs> what they are is right. that they have lots of cells that are all different or many of them are different. Yeah. Don't forget plants. <laughs> right. The way the new tools we can use to measure that is to look at the transcripts. And so... The early genetics tools would sequence the DNA, so we would know what the genome was. Like, that's what that organism has. It has that DNA in its nucleus. Right, sort of the, the blueprint or the fingerprint or whatever. Yeah, and that'll be the same for all the cells in the body. But if you want to know what DNA is being used at any point in time in any place, then you look at the transcripts. So what you do is you take a specific piece of tissue um, normally a very small, like you specifically want to take, um, you know, the tissue in their gut, pull that out and then do some chemistry basically to only get the RNA and then sequence that. So you're only looking at the genes that are being expressed in that tissue at that specific time. So right. those are the, those are the things that are active right now. Right. 
the active biology going on. And so when they're saying that the up to 50% of the transcripts found in the organism are the fungi, that means the new proteins that are being made, the new, really the biological activity that's happening in that tissue at that time, half of those are from genes uh, from the fungi. Right. And yeah, is it like, is the is the ant body producing those or is it the, the fungi that's producing them and just sticking them into the cells and the tissue and stuff? Or do you know? Mm. I would guess that's something they would really have to try to figure out. It's, I would guess it's both Mm -hmm. because you know, a lot of parasitism hijacks the hosts like a virus. They don't make proteins. They just sort of like inject their genes and get the host cell to make it for them. Right. Yeah, that's kind of what I was like picturing in my head. But yeah, I guess maybe it's different with Yeah. I don't know if they do head. that or if they're just in in there and they're taking resources from the cells and then producing the proteins on their own. So I don't I don't know if yeah, I don't know. And I I might guess that that is a big question they have as well and I don't know if they've answered that. Cool. A big reason for studying transcripts is to really understand, it's often called phenotypic plasticity. It's just like the change in traits over time. So in in plant work, I know there's been a lot of research where like you have a plant and you it's undamaged. It's It's had a nice life so far and you take the transcripts and you see what genes are being um, expressed. Like there's always going to be genes for photosynthesis in these things. But then if you damage the plant, like put an herbivore on there mm-hmm. and then take the genes out, you'll start seeing the genes that change from one sample to the other sample. You can start maybe knowing those are the ones that are involved in defense against herbivory because they're upregulating those in response to the herbivory. Yeah. Like these don't get used unless this right. certain circumstance comes up and then boom, they shift those on and start producing the anti-herbivory juices. And so it's a way of figuring out what parts of the genome are involved in that sort of ecology. And I believe that's what they're doing in this system as well. Like you have the entire genome, genes that do everything for the ant, which of those genes are involved in this, you know, infection process? Well, it's probably likely going to be the genes that are on when they're infected, but not on when they're not infected. Yeah. So it's a, a cool, yeah, cool way to start taking a massive genome and narrowing it down to what parts might be important. Cool. So once they've maybe figured out some, often we call them target genes, um, that they think might be involved, like they, they have guesses, you know, from other insects or from Drosophila, which is sort of the, the common, um, genetics insect. Mm-hmm. There's lots of shared genes. So they might think it has to do with locomotion or, you know, various things, one of the tools is to do what's called genetic knockouts. And um, I'm not sure if they've gotten to this, but this is one of the things they're hoping to do. Like if they think there's a gene for, there's a gene in insects called the foraging gene, which really affects, you know, it's a single gene that in all sorts of insects and in mammals, actually, in pretty much all animals, there's this gene that basically, like if you have one copy of this gene, you're likely to move around a lot. And if you don't have it, you're likely to kind of, not move around a lot. Huh. <laughs> um, and this was originally discovered in fruit flies, like feeding on apples. 
Um, and then that gene has been found in everything and it's really important. So that could be a gene because their locomotion is so different when they're infected, maybe that affects that gene. So they could go in and basically change that gene or knock out that gene in the ants and see if that changes the effect of the infection. Yeah. Like if you take out the foraging gene yeah, and then you infect them and then everything stays the same, then you're like, boom, Yeah, we right. figured it out. They should call that, it the uh, Kerouac gene. I don't know. <laughs> and so one way you can do that is you don't have to necessarily create a fully genetically modified organism. You can inject um, what's called small RNA, which are these little bits of RNA that interfere with the transcription process and can really only interfere with a specific part. Basically, if it wanted to transcribe the foraging gene at that time, the small RNA would interfere with that, and then it wouldn't, it would be like that gene never existed Okay. Temp- for a while. Yeah. Um, so that's a, a way, and it, as far as I know, I think that's normally like, you, it's not in the whole body, like you could do in some part of the, only in the abdomen or something, like okay. where you can inject it in. But that's a modern technique of knocking out genes, knocking out the function of a gene to then test if that gene is doing what you think it is. Right. Just some, some light genetic modification. Basically. Yeah. And I uh, think that's one of the things that they're working on. That's cool. Um, The other thing that we talked a little bit about was the caterpillar fungus that we, when we talk about the summit disease, um, when Ian's talking about at the end and it's sort of like a whole other world, like, Oh, what about, all the other Ophiocordyceps species of other, you know, other species of fungus in that, in that group that infect other animals and other ants and have all these other specific specialty. Yeah. And sometimes do similar things, but you know, as is normally the case with, uh, parasites, they're hyper specific. So it's like this one fungi only affects this one caterpillar. And I actually got a, a cool opportunity to come across this somewhat famous other Ophiocordyceps. And I think I first saw it in a David Attenborough documentary, because I think it's in Life in the Undergrowth, oh, nice. um, where it talks about this. So when I went, I went to Tibet um, last year or the year before, I remember, and I knew that this was there. There's this um, caterpillar fungus in Tibet that's collected and sold on, um, sold as an aphrodisiac or having some other medicinal properties. Yeah. It's kind of like one cure, um, fits all sort of thing. Like they say that it is natural Viagra. They say that it cures cancer, like just all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Which probably means it doesn't do anything, but (laughs) (laughs) if I had to guess, I, I, uh, I'm not positive that this is like a total, it's not like, you know, there are, you know, they sell like pangolin scales which is like absolutely just the exact same stuff as your fingernails right like it's known that that does nothing yeah i'm not sure that i don't think that's the case with these fungi because they i think they do potentially they are bioactive in some way right it's not like full-on snake oil it's like yeah maybe it's i don't know i don't know how you feel about echinacea but uh maybe (laughs) cbd or like something where it's like science doesn't know yet what if it does anything or not but it it might or it It also might might not right yeah um but yeah these that's a moth it might be a butterfly it's probably a moth um 
a moth or a butterfly it, high up in the mountains in Tibet. Like it only lives in way above the tree line, total like high tundra. And they live in the soil. And then when they're infected by this fungi, they come up close to the soil. And then there's pretty big fungal stalk uh, that pokes up through the soil. And then um, various uh, Tibetans go out and you know, uh, forage to look for these and then bring them down. And often, you know, then they'll get shipped off and sold, you know, in Shanghai or whatever. And they're extremely expensive. Yeah. Like way more valuable per weight than gold. Right. I saw actually, you know, because I recognized it, I was at a um, gift shop at, it was actually like a little park and they had like a little gift shop thing. And just in this glass jar, <laughs> there is just a big pile of them. And I was like, oh man, there they are. Oh, Crazy. Wow. Yeah. Just like saw it firsthand is just kind of a normal thing along um, among different like knickknacks and stuff was just this big jar full of uh, caterpillar fungus. Wow. I wonder how much that was worth. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I don't, I never really got a full grasp of the conversion rate. <laughs> right. Well, the, of like what stuff costs. So yeah, I, totally. I didn't remember what, what the, what the cost was. Well, there's this, uh, great Atlantic article from 2018, also written by Ed Young. Um, and it is titled the world's most valuable parasite is in trouble. And it's kind of talking about how uh. climate change is messing with the, with the market. And it's this whole like economy around it and stuff. But um, oh, wow. th- there's one anecdote about uh, $1,000 for 250 pieces. And then, it's, I don't know exactly what a piece is, but um, later in the article, it also says that the global market for caterpillar fungus is now worth $5 billion to $11 billion. Wow. And that would be USD. Wow. That's yeah. wild. And to have that come from such a specific place, like it's only at a certain altitude in the Tibetan highlands. Yeah. And it's just these, you know, you know, that we both watched this um, video, those interviews with Tibetans and otherwise they would, you know, either be in one of the cities working at some job or um, herding yak. That's what, you know, what I saw most, most people did out there. Mm-hmm. And so it was valuable enough to give up either of those opportunities to go dig up these fungi. Right. (laughs) But it was, they were having a rough go of it because they were basically like, there were wealthy landowners who bought the property up in the mountains and then they were paid laborers, but they were paid per per, piece that they got. So like as the climate changes and there's less and less of them, then they're just doing the same work, but making less money. So they were kind of struggling. Yeah. They were, one guy was saying like, you know, back in the day he could easily get 500 in a day and now it's like a hundred a day or something. Right. Yeah. So then some of that, I guess was, um, it's some combination of over harvesting, but also climate change is part of the story. So what you're saying? I think it was primarily climate change. Um, Alpine regions are warming worldwide and several species have responded by slowly shifting to higher colder ranges. Yeah. Um, but caterpillar fungus is so dependent on host moths. There we go. Moths and the plants they feed from, uh, that it might be hard for the entire web of partners to relocate. Yeah. In polar regions, basically colder regions are changing faster due to climate change. Mm. It's just a universal pattern. Mountaintops and polar regions 
they can they've already had way higher temperature changes than you know more temperate or equatorial zones that's just how it works for whatever reason <laughs> mm-hmm. sort of so, like a yeah. multiplication sort of situation like yeah when you hear like a global climate change of you know one degree that's not equal everywhere and that we're already seeing like two or three degree changes in in the poles so it's it makes sense that these and i've heard lots of ecology of these alpine regions having big effects like huge changes in timing of flowering and snow cover and all that so they're mm-hmm. delicate systems right so get your tibetan viagra now while you still can <laughs> yeah snatch it up <laughs> i uh i crossed off all the things on my list did you have anything else uh no i don't think so i think that uh that covers it for me. Oh, we were um, talking about the idea that people could send questions in and we yeah. could kind of relay those, either answer them ourselves or relay them to um, people in the lab if people wanted to know anything, like after watching the video or or hearing this, um, if they want to know more or if there's any specific questions they have. Yeah, there's a few options for that. I think putting in comments on the the YouTube channel. Um, mm-hmm. We'll definitely look at all those. But we have an email for comments on this or any other topic, which is naturisticseries at gmail.com. And yeah, would be great to hear any thoughts or comments. And uh, we can definitely get in touch with those researchers if, you, if it goes beyond what, what we've learned. Yeah. Cool. Well, I'm excited for that to come out. Me and, too. Uh, it's, it's, been, it's been fun watching all the the drafts come along it's uh really come together at the end i'm i'm pumped for it nice i think it turned out yeah. great yeah uh people have been excited and uh think it's gonna get around so i guess that's it we will be back with a uh, more normal episode coming up soon but definitely go check out our latest video and we'll see you next time peace <laughs>